0: coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast.
1: So when I think about psychedelics and herbal medicines and how they've been stripped away from the cultures with which they originated, what we've taken is the medicinal aspects, but we've left all the ritual that went with Mm -hmm. these medicinal aspects. Mm -hmm. And because we're Westerners and that's what we do best, right? We take what we want and leave the rest. And what MAPS really reminded me is that there's ritual that belongs with these medicines. We don't get to just take the parts we want. And because we're in Westerners and I'm I'm an American, I don't actually have access to those rituals. And to pretend that I do and, and perform the rituals is not the same as learning how do I embody this ritual? This ritual that is not mine. I cannot go on and take on. We had we had amazing people there who had beautiful rituals that they were sharing with us. And I knew that I couldn't just lift it and just start doing it in my own work. It required that I embodied what is this ritual calling for me to do? It's calling for me to surrender. It's calling for me to wait. It's calling for me to ask for permission. It's calling me to ask for guidance and embodying that so that when i do it as an american as an american of haitian descent i can perform a different type of ritual that links more closely to me but embodies that message embodies that that vehicle that i can use with the medicine
0: Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts. Presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. Today on the show, I am honored to be speaking with a healer and guide who is deeply steeped in ritual, magic, and the wisdom of her Haitian ancestors, Flory St. Amy. On the show, we discuss how growing up in Brooklyn of Haitian descent informed Flory's perspective on psychedelics. We talk about psychedelic medicine as ancestral healing and justice work. Flory shares her experience on MAPS's first training for communities of color in Kentucky and what she learned from her cohort there. Finally, we discuss the importance of ritual and the influence of the regal Haitian lineage Flory holds. Flory is a radical social worker and a graduate of MAPS's 2019 Training for Communities of Color. If you're interested in learning more about her work, you can email her at floryist.amy gmail.com. And that is f-l-o-r-i-e-s-t dot a-i-m-e at gmail.com. And if you're inspired by her work, As an act of reciprocity, consider contributing to her GoFundMe, which is linked in the show notes. Finally, a message from Maya, the psychedelic practitioner platform that makes this show possible. If you're a psychedelic practitioner, please take 10 minutes to complete our survey. Your contributions will help shed light on psychedelic therapy practices around the world. And the link for that survey is... At MayaHealth.com. That's www.mayahalth.com/slash/research/slash/surveys, and that'll also be linked in the show notes. And now, here's Flory Saint Amy. Now we are officially here. live and direct, and yeah. I'm here in LA. You're in New York, yeah. Yep. Brooklyn, New York. Yep. Beautiful. And um, how is it over there right now? The spring was really rough with the virus, but what I'm hearing is that New York is doing pretty well now.
1: Yeah, it seems to be, uh, someone mentioned to me herd immunity, which I didn't actually do much reading about. I think New York or Brooklyn specifically, what it looks like is that we've all agreed to agree that we're just going with that we've all had it by now. Um, which can be alarming because we definitely have a lot of spaces where people are more casual with masks and things. and then there are other parts where people are just very aware i I was not in Brooklyn for a little bit in July and being around people who weren't masks, I could feel the anxiety. me and my partner from coming from New York, we could feel that we had a different experience than these people um, where we were really anxious. for like, let's go to a restaurant. We're like, no, 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 we can only eat outside. And so we could feel that there's definitely been a change in how we're approaching being with people. So here it feels more casual, but when I'm not in New York, I'm like, oh yeah, this has impacted how I feel like being in a room with people. So I would say like we're in this kind of, we've all agreed kind of space. It feels like in Brooklyn, um, we're all on the same cage. Um, and I don't think he's explicitly named that.
0: Mm. You, you, you bring up something that I think is so poignant in this moment in our, in our culture and in our lives, which is the sense of safety and Mm -hmm. different people's experience of safety. There Mm. are people in this country who feel totally safe with no masks going to barbecues, doing their thing. And they feel safe. Whatever their beliefs are that make them feel safe, they feel safe. And then there's others who, like my brother, for example, alcohol swabs packages that comes to his house. He is just like, he is not fucking around with this thing. And and there's a different feeling of safety. And I think that in this country, different folks have different levels of safety. And that totally informs what we're able to do, how free we are. And I think that it is a segue into our conversation about psychedelic medicine, because I think that your level of safety entering the work, both personally and your own trauma and your own life lived experience, and then also culturally, and in your relationship to substances, it, it is such an important issue. And it's one of the things that I hope we have a chance to talk about today.
1: Absolutely. I, I Yeah, I completely see... The response to COVID being definitely linked to what we think is safe and not safe outside of COVID, and I think definitely links into psychedelic work and being able to find safety in something that we've really been taught is super unsafe. So even that, the ability to think you can be safe in this space where there's lots of information and media and stories that people have told you about unsafe practices and to find that I think I'll be safe to do psychedelics is in itself I think very familiar um, or similar in some way there is a connection there definitely
0: mm. well Flori, welcome to the show it's a real pleasure to have you here. And I'm excited to learn about your journey in this work, your inspirations, and, and where you see the field heading and where you'd like the field to head and what we can do as a community to bring psychedelic medicine to a deeper place of safety for all people so that we can really get down to the work of the incredible healing that's possible here. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate your your presence here today with me and and your guidance for for myself and for our, our listeners for the show. So thank you. Um, and let's just start with at the beginning. We, you had just talked about growing up and getting a message around psychedelics and safety. And mm-hmm. I grew up in in the '80s and '90s. Just say no to drugs. All Perfect. drugs are drugs, and all drugs are bad unless a pharmaceutical company sells them to you. Is that is that similar to, to the landscape that you grew up in?
1: Absolutely. I I grew up a dare kid too. I, I don't think I was one of the, the top dare kids, but definitely ha- I remember them coming into school and got t-shirts and all the um, wonderful things. Um, I also grew up Black and brown in Brooklyn um, after war on drugs really changed the narrative so that black and brown people were cautious of other black and brown people in drugs and what that meant for us to be in proximity to drugs. But not only that, just thinking of all the stories, um, I'm Haitian, I'm my family's from Haiti, and just thinking of all the stories of like spells that people put on people or on their food. Or So there was this way that psychedelics had this like witchcraft to it too. So there was like this American understanding that drugs are bad, because I'm getting taught that in school. There was this black and brown experience of like, Drugs get you in a lot of trouble, and people who do drugs, like you should be weary of, and those who are black and brown. And then there was this my Haitian life and like family who had this like magical fear of things messing with your morality, things messing with your spirituality, and psychedelics possibly being linked to that certain food, certain things that you shouldn't have because they might make you feel. Um, out of control or make you do something you wouldn't want to do. So I grew up super afraid of drugs. Like I never did them. I remember the first time I smoked a cigarette was my 19th birthday. And I literally had to like, like have someone be like, okay, I'm ready. I want to smoke a cigarette today. (laughs) And like, they were like, okay, it's not that big of a deal. But I was like, (laughs) no, I need. and, And so I like, I remember that feeling like so wild that I would dare to do such a thing. So for me now, 20 years <laughs> later, not 20 years later, like 10, 11 years later, to be sitting here and saying psychedelics is the future and it's what's going to save and heal black and brown people, that's a major shift. Major shift.
0: That is a That is a very strong and profound statement to say that this is what's going to save black and brown people. I'd love for you to expand a little bit on that.
1: Yeah, I think Maybe "save" isn't the right word. I think that there's, I like to think black and brown people protected psychedelics when it was literally being beaten out of them. Um, When their culture that was attached to this medicine, to herbs, um, to the land were literally being stripped and beaten out of them. We managed somehow to protect this wisdom and for it to still be present here today. And I think that it is us returning to where our natural understanding of our connection to the world is. And maybe natural is too strong of a word, but what we did develop as Indigenous peoples all over the globe in our connections to medicines and to the herbs and to the earth. So I don't think it's something that's new that's coming to save. I think it's our return. And I think what's most difficult about it right now was that the people who are teaching us this are white people and people who have benefited from the destruction of that leaving our, our our homes, our cultures, our the places that we originate from. And to now have it taught back to me is like this difficulty, but I have to recognize and remember that this is my ancestral knowledge. This was predates all the people who are teaching it to me now and all the people who had to hold it and protect it were Black and brown. And so I really do feel like we're returning to something that is ours. And unfortunately, the route to it is unfair, unjust, and kind of disturbing that we don't acknowledge. But it is ours. Um, Plant medicine is Black and brown medicine. And so by save, I mean like return to. I don't think it's something new. I think it's something to re-engage with.
0: It makes me think of in spirituality how they say like you are not arriving at a place, you're actually awakening to something that has always been true for you. Mm-hmm. you know, like in yeah. meditation, we're awakening to our divine essence. We're not trying to get there, we're not arriving, we're not maybe not even reclaiming, it's just awakening to that being yeah. being, yeah. being yeah. part of us. And it, that yeah. it makes me think of that. So let's talk about your return, let's mm-hmm. say. How did psychedelics come into your life?
1: So I would say that my entire life, I've just been someone who needed to understand things more fully. What's the best way I could say it? I've always been told, like, I'm the person who... People say a cigar sometimes just a cigar. And I'm like, hmm, cigar is actually like paper, the tobacco, there's other plants in there. It's actually like a lot of things that go mm. into cigars. So a cigar is not a cigar. So that was me as a child. And you can imagine that was very annoying um, to my adults in my life. And I just continued to be that person. And so at some point, like three years ago, I had been doing... Um, Talk therapy for eight years. I had a great therapist. I had done all types of different works. I've tried like movement works and all these other things. And I began to be engaged in this group that was about working through aggression, working Mm. through aggression and through the body specifically. So, not thinking and talking about aggression, but feeling and moving through aggression physically. And when I was in this group, I could keep feeling this part of me that would say, okay, push, but don't push too hard. Okay, run, but don't run too fast. And so I could feel or yell, but don't yell too loud. And so there was a part of me that wanted to really feel this aggression, this peace that I knew was, had been dormant and it's already been told to me that I wasn't supposed to be angry. I wasn't supposed to have aggression. I was also a larger framed kid my whole life. So I would be playing with children my age, but because I was a bigger kid, if I hit them, it was significantly harder than if they hit me. So I was always told I needed to control and contain my how much power I had. And also aggression. So those went hand in hand. My aggression and my power, I was told I had to contain it. So when I was in this group, I could feel all the ways that, that conditioning did not allow me... To really feel the capacity for aggression and anger. And I remember speaking to someone, I was just like, you know, I think these exercises would be great if I could just lower my defenses just enough so that I could do the whole thing and see what comes up afterwards. Cause I can literally feel them rising as I'm about to do the exercise. And then they were like, well, there are ways to do that. And I was like, please do say more. And um, that's when they told me about psychedelics. They're like, you know, you could use some plant medicines to support your defenses, to just give you a little break so you could see what happens. And I think at that point in my life, I had done so many different, I I like to tell all my clients, I have never done anything to you that I haven't done to myself first. I promise. (laughs) So I, at that point, i had done so many things. I was like, yeah yeah, I want to do it. And it was not a question. There was nothing part of me that was like, oh, we're supposed to be scared of this. We're not supposed to want to do this. Everything about it felt like if I don't do this, I I don't think I'm ever going to get to that point where I know what I am without those defenses, what I know what I am without those protections and that conditioning.
0: You know, you are a little bit of uh, of an anomaly in that, in many of the people I've interviewed, in that you approach psychedelics as healing right out the gate. A lot of yeah. folks that I talked to approached it in recreational ways, you know, like at a, at a concert or something like that. And then later on, we're able to see like, oh, that was actually healing. But you, it sounds like, and tell me if I'm right about this, you actually approach plant medicine to say, well, I've got this thing, I want to explore it, and I'm going to use this tool to do it. And and I, I found that quite rare in people who... People's approach to psychedelics is so often recreational. And so I I wonder if that first experience for you might have, I wonder what it felt like to actually be clearly approaching it from the perspective of healing.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that's true. I like to tell people like I've literally not had psychedelics outside of guide work. Um, until very, very recently. Um, so I literally no, have no other concept of the usage outside of healing work. And I think what that brought to me was when I'm seeing in other people, when I hear in other people, is that I had this, I had to believe in the medicine in a way right out the gate that it would be something healing for me. I couldn't happen upon it, I needed it to be healing for me. And I think. That allowed for I've heard so many different iterations of people's first experiences, and for me, it literally felt like a veil was lifted, and like there was this lightness that I didn't didn't know I had in me. I didn't know I could have it, and, and I consider myself not a very light person or fun person. I consider myself very serious. Um, you
0: seem very serious so far in the interview. I must <laughs> say, like this is one of the more serious interviews I've done. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: consider myself very serious. Yeah, so so it was just so interesting to see me feeling this lightness, this awareness. And I think my coming in with this, you're my last hope. You're You're my, maybe not last hope, but you're my next step up to releasing something and I don't even know what it is. I think that just brought me to a place where psychedelics, I came out just thinking it's a medicine. I didn't have any other way of thinking about it, even though obviously through media, through friends, through other people, I know psychedelics has had all different types of experiences for people. But for me, it was just like, no, I need you because I know you're my next step. And I kind of need this to work. I'm like I kind of need this to do something for me. Um I do think it's not often that I hear that narrative, but for me, it's, it's easy. And I think that also, I think about in psychedelic communities where we do like moral psychedelics, like moral substances or like this substance for like therapeutic purpose. So it's more important than that substance, which is just for fun or like the morality we give plants. I think that... I easily could have been one of those people because that was my only context. I could easily have been a person who was like, oh my gosh, you're just using it to like party. That's, do you know how good this medicine is if you use it with the right intention? But I think me coming in that way, I was so attached to my intention that I was like, everyone has an intention. Like everyone has to have an intention where they're using the medicine, whatever it is. And it just felt like my intention was this really rigid, serious thing. And that makes sense for me. And someone else's intention is not going to be that rigid and serious. It's going to be more about the enjoyment, the, the ability to escape, the ability to play. That makes more sense for them. So I think it helped me knowing that it was so different from other people's perspectives of why starting to use psychedelics that it allowed me to like step away from the morality of psychedelics because I don't think many people want to engage in psychedelics the way that I did. <laughs> so...
0: Well, and also your story highlights something that I love about psychedelic healing and psychedelic medicine and plant medicine, which is that in the sort of more traditional western medicine, there is a disorder and it has been decided it's very cut as this is the disorder, it's in the DSM5 and then you take this treatment for this disorder. And what I love so much about this the profundity of this medicine is that it isn't healing just it's not like you take this just for depression. Like you were describing how like you were a bigger kid when you grow up. So you you developed in your mind a need to be small, a need to be limited, a need to oh, if, if I'm my real self, if I'm full, if I'm if I'm fully alive, then I might hurt someone, I might get in trouble. And yeah. that limitation, that's not in the DSM five. You know, that's not that's not depression per se, although depression can be part of that, depression can come from that. But yeah. it's 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 limiting the width of your expression in this beautiful human life, mm-hmm. and then and then you go to the plant ally that says fuck that, <laughs> you know, yeah. like you know why wow. why be small?
1: Mm-hmm. I think that yes, that's exactly my experience. That and I think that that links so deeply to oppression. Mm-hmm. I think what psychedelics has the opportunity for, right? I don't want to say it's innately doing this, but it has the opportunity for is that there's so much that we've learned is unacceptable and that needs to be restricted and needs to be contained. And a lot of it, I do believe firmly is what we later on call DSM diagnoses because they follow a particular type of restriction that has led to whatever the diagnosis is, we want to call it. And I think that's the the response and consequence of oppression, of colonization, that we've all learned a way that the way that we are fully is unacceptable and is can be harmful to some entity that we may not even know um, somewhere in the world. And so I think that psychedelics, what it can do if someone's intention is that, right, is to see all the parts that we have learned needed to be restricted so that we can survive in the world in the way that it is. And and I don't only think about this for black and brown folks in the ways that we've had to learn to survive, but I also think about it for white folks in the ways that they've had to learn to survive and all the ways that we don't even think about it because it's just what's necessary to move in the world. I couldn't be a big kid hitting all the kids and get in trouble all the time. That wouldn't have made me successful in navigating the world. I did need to learn to pull in and restrict, but no one ever told me when I could turn that back off. No one ever helped me, okay, now that you learn to restrict, here's how you get in the middle. This is how you merge the need to be powerful and the need to not harm. Like, no one showed me that. And I think psychedelics offered me the opportunity to see, oh, A does not equal B, as I've been taught. A equals possibly B, but also possibly C, and possibly D, E, and F. And those were not my awareness. So psychedelics have that experience for me of letting me see all the ways that I've learned to play small or to be restrictive or to contain myself that did serve me at one point, but at this point no longer served me and no one's ever taught me how to let it go. Even though I've had plenty of people try, nothing has been as successful as psychedelics.
0: I imagine that there are people listening who are going to be inspired by your story of you going from your own personal healing into wanting to heal others. I think there's a there are a lot of folks who are at some point on this path and I think it is one of the invitations of psychedelics which is sort of like okay I got all I got this thing I'm stuck I need and psychedelics are like look you know a non-dual oceanic realm of brilliance okay cool oh you're healing okay this happened as a child that hurt and then you get to a point where the psychedelics are like now it's your time to go help like now it's time to go help people and so I'm curious can you tell me the story of how you went from exploring your own healing in psychedelics through to doing the training that you did with maps and like stepping into this being something that you wanted to do and supporting and serving others
1: yeah i would say what i recognized almost immediately that so much of the pain and suffering with me was ancestral i just recognized immediately through psychedelics in psychedelics that I had this grief for my lineage that I that I was carrying and that really helped me stay in this place of suffering, in this strong place of suffering. And so for many of my first few sessions, I grieved. I cried a lot and, and I knew that it wasn't mine. It was for other people. It wasn't my experience. It was experience of people before me, I think is a lot of grief for the world. But what really motivated me was just thinking all the black and brown folks who are carrying this grief that we've now just accepted as part of our, our plight in the world. And for me, psychedelics is justice work. It's equity work. Mm, mm. I can't separate people feeling good about this world. That's not what I want from psychedelic work. I don't want you to feel good about being in this world. I want you to grieve and be angry. I want you to recognize how much the suffering you have is not yours and it was given to you by people who don't care what you do with it. They just leave you with it. I want that fury. That's what I want psychedelics to do. I want it to engage that anger about what the world has forced you to hold and deal with. So I don't look at psychedelics as like making people feel good. I look at psychedelics as like, I want you to be so angry, you cannot accept this anymore. For yourself and for others, so I think my work and my grieving and the ancestral work has allowed me to feel I will not continue to hold this, and no one should hold this anymore. This is not ours, and we need to let it go. All of us need to let it go, and I want us to be so furious and unable to accept it anymore that it has to change. So psychedelic is justice work. That's how I've come to this, and it's. Not It's not like, oh, I was so enlightened and so beautiful. I wanted everyone to feel that way. I was like, no, I got so angry. I was like, oh my God, yeah, everyone needs this anger. This is what we need.
0: I, I love that. I love the idea that psychedelics can inform a righteousness towards justice because that's what we need as an antidote to what can otherwise happen, which is the spiritual bypassing. Oh, oh we're yeah. all one. I don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. I don't have any responsibility to anyone else because we're actually all one. And so mm-hmm. I'm just going to take care of me. You know, yeah. that, and that is endemic in, in some psychedelic circles. And I think that you just raised such a such a beautiful point here that this medicine isn't to make a, a, a situation that is fundamentally unjust feel good or feel nice or feel, you know, it to reveal. And as you've also pointed out, to see what's not yours and release it so that you can be free to actually hold that anger that is righteous and true and that clarity of the world that says, no, I'm, I'm here to act, you mm-hmm. know. And, and it seems like part of acting for you is around service to others and helping spread this message.
1: Yeah, I think that's always been my work, and psychedelics have shown me exactly how. There's been a way. I've, I'm a social worker. I've like I was in every like volunteer group in high school. I was an organizer. There's so many different ways that I've wanted to support and help people. People are my passion. Healing is my passion. I couldn't always say that. Psychedelics allows me to say that now. But there was a way that psychedelic kind of narrowed in and helped me pinpoint and target exactly how I can do this work. There's a specific way that I can be using psychedelics so that I'm making sure that it is enacting justice And I think that's what's shifted for me when I think about how I'm in service of people. I've always been in service of people, but now it's so targeted. It's so clear to me um, that it requires this elimination of what doesn't belong to us and then this righteous anger to really move and enact justice to change the world. So yeah, and I think of spiritual bypassing, I I think about so many psychedelic communities where they work through all types of things in their lives, yet racism is fully intact, it's untouched. It's still very much part of the fabric of how we talk about mental health. It's part of the fabric of how we talk about other people. It's part of the fabric about how we talk about who deserves psychedelic work. And what kind of substances are good substances? It's just all linked in there. Um, So it's interesting to me, the spiritual bypassing, because I feel like psychedelics is just such the opposite for me that it's really hard for me to wrap my head around how it could just, and racism and oppression could be so intact. Privilege and power could be so intact. And I think the medicine's always asking us to actually dismantle that. So that's, always oh, curious to me it's not curious i do get why but it's upsetting i guess it's upsetting that's a better word
0: i'm curious how this played out for you in terms of the maps training so you trained in kentucky with maps is and it was the first bipoc cohort of maps yeah. is that the case Yeah. And I'm curious what that experience was like for you, because earlier in the conversation you talked about these are these plant medicines belong to indigenous people, belong to black and brown folks, and now we're learning about them from white folks, right? Yeah. And so, you know, this is kind of a classic case of the sort of like well-meaning white folks who are trying to be inclusive, but also there's some tokenizing, and so there's some edge there, and people really are really trying to create equal access situations, but it is such a complicated situation with with the unconscious biases that people bring to the table. And so I'm curious how you felt about being in a cohort of other BIPOC folks and how that was held by MAPS. And my presumption is that was your first formal training in psychedelics. Is that correct? Yes, that was. Okay, so, so your first formal training with this cohort, I'd love for you... If you will, to paint a picture of what that experience was and what you thought really worked about it, and what might what some of the challenges might have been as well.
1: Yeah, I think oh, I've described it as, and I, I think I describe this as. I'm also in Hakomi training, and I'm in like a thousand trainings. I'm constantly learning, and I think what I describe that as is. We're trying to learn something without recognizing the room that we are in is oppression. Like the classroom is oppression. We're in this building of oppression. And although the well-intentioned work is that we're going to do something different, if we aren't recognizing that the the way that we teach is oppressive, the way that we hoard knowledge and only offer it in certain types of way is oppressive. There's no way of doing a training that I've seen of this caliber and size and of this magnitude, right? Like this is a big deal that MAPS is doing these trainings. It's a big deal that they had a POC-only training needed to address that the room that we're in is racism and oppression. And I think that coming in, it was a room full of BIPOC folks. I think we've all known what it's like to be in an environment. We all know what it's like to learn in this culture. And so we all, I feel, came in ready to learn in the way that we've learned to learn, which is sitting, taking information in, listening to whoever is giving the information, um, probably doing some practice, but it not really needing us as part of it, that the people actually don't matter. Most of trainings are like that. It doesn't matter who's in the room. You just need to be listening to the teacher, right? And I think that what we learned in Kentucky, what I've learned in Hakomi, what I've learned in so many other places is that if we're not taking context who the people are in the room, this information is not for them. And I think we learned that in a way that was experiential, to say the least. Um, we learned it in a way that showed us that if, We are not our full black and brown bodies in this space with our knowledge, with our ancestral, with our wisdoms, but with our experiences. If they're not also dictating how the learning happens, then this learning is for paper, um, maybe just for certification. But will it allow us to do what we're hoping to do from this training, which is to transform these areas so that they can open up and be accessible to black and brown people? And what we learned was, no, if we're using the same tools we've used for trainings since the inception of school in the United States, then we cannot expect that it matters that Black and brown people are the ones in the seats. So we learned that. And I, I think we pivoted because of it. It became very much about who are the people in the room? What do we have to give to this space? What do we have to teach each other? Where is the ability to learn across the cohort. And as soon as that started happening, I i mean, there was a shift in it. I think many people have different ways of the sh- calling it the shift. I think some people call it like the magic, whatever it was. But there's so many places where we learned, oh, if we're not using the wisdoms we already have with each other, then we're actually missing the opportunity here to really build something that's so different from anything else where they just inputted Black and brown bodies but left the system the same, we get to say the system didn't work and we get to create something different because we have knowledges that are different uh, so and wisdoms that are different. So I think maps and many other places, I think it was just learning there's no blueprint for this. There's no blueprint to decolonize colonization. Um, what we really are trying to do is learn more about it so that we can split it up a little bit and figure out how to work around it. But I think what we learned the hard way and the gratifying way it was it was ultimately very gratifying that we don't have the tools yet and it is a it is a matter of practice. It's a matter of just keep trying um, and I think they did that and they've continued to do that to just keep trying in my from where I sit, I don't know what happens outside of me.
0: You spoke of cross-cohort education, uh, which yeah. I love. Actually, you totally anticipated the question that I next wanted to ask about this, mm-hmm. which I which I love. You talked about learning from each other. I wonder if there are any examples you could share with the listeners today of some things that you actually learned specifically from your, your people in your cohort that you're kind of bringing into the way that you're approaching serving others now.
1: Yeah, I think, so when I think about psychedelics and herbal medicines and how they've been stripped away from the cultures with which they originated, what we've taken is the medicinal aspects, but we've left all the ritual that went with Mm -hmm. these medicinal Mm aspects. And because we're Westerners and that's what we do best, right? We take what we want and leave the rest. And what MAPS really reminded me is that there's ritual that belongs with these medicines. We don't get to just take the parts we want. And because we're in Westerners and I'm, I'm an American, I don't actually have access to those rituals. And to pretend that I do and, and perform the rituals is not the same as learning how do I embody this ritual? This ritual that is not mine. I cannot go on and take on. We've had we had amazing people there who had beautiful rituals that they were sharing with us. And I knew that I couldn't just lift it and just start doing it in my own work. It required that I embodied what is this ritual calling for me to do? It's calling for me to surrender. It's calling for me to wait. It's calling for me to ask for permission. It's calling me to ask for guidance and embodying that so that when I do it as an American, as an American of Haitian descent, I can perform a different type of ritual that links more closely to me, but embodies that message, embodies that that vehicle that I can use with the medicine. And I think that's what I learned. I learned that the ritual without, the medicine without the ritual is Western medicine. It's, it's, it's almost exactly the same as pharmaceuticals. If we're using the medicine and leaving behind its home, which was the ritual, which was a community, but we can't, re- we can't replicate it. I can't replicate the home of these medicines. But what I can do is embody what the ritual and the community wanted and intended for this medicine to be used for. And to the best of my ability, adapt that into my American Haitian descendant way of using ritual and using community. So that's what I learned strongest from my cohort, just the beauty and power of ritual, how much as American I have lost touch with the idea of ritual, of what that really means. And how I, can read, I, if I, when I, how I can bring that back into my life and bring that back into the practice in a way that honors what I've learned, but also does not make it a performance or a show. It makes it an authentic embodiment of, their, of what they've offered me, what they shared to me, what they gave to me at, in MAPS.
0: One of the biggest privileges of my entire life was that I initiated with the Bwiti people in Gabon with Iboga about two years ago. And that experience was such exquisite ritual, such pageantry, such, such deep, deep magic beyond the, the, the plant medicine itself, but like deep magic. And I felt, too, the, kind of the poverty of my own tradition in the context of ritual. That ritual is something that, as you were saying earlier, is like we take what we want and we leave the rest. We extract the molecule and we leave the plant. We, you know, we take the thing that seems like that's what does the work and then we leave all these rituals behind. And being with the Bwiti people and seeing like it's all ritual. It's like yeah. everything is done in its way, and it and and to bring it back to the kind of the beginning of the conversation. There's something. There's safety in cultural rituals. The understanding mm-hmm. of expectation. What is my role? How do I how do I step into my role in this moment? How do I step into my power in the context of these supportive rituals? So I. I I love that you are talking about ritual, and I got to ask. I don't know if the, if you're there yet in terms of your practice, but I really want to know more about how your Haitian ancestry is informing how you're approaching ritual. And and I'm not I'm not well versed enough in in Haitian culture to understand myself what might be brought from that ancestry. But it it is as I as I'm very clear. It's a it's a culture extremely rich with magic. Are you bringing specific rituals that you're tapping into from your Haitian ancestry? Or is it maybe more like a vibe than a specific kind of a ritual itself?
1: Yeah, is um, a great question. So I like to sit before I do psychedelics or work with psychedelics. I like to sit at my altar, my ancestral altar. And I sit there and what I usually do, so I'm going to answer that in two parts. The first part I'm going to actually, I'm going to come back to this, is that what has come up more and more in my psychedelic experiences is uh, me speaking Creole, Mm -hmm. Haitian Creole. And it's not something that I grew up really speaking. It's, familiar to me. I also do work in Haiti. So I speak it when I'm there, but I don't usually speak it when I'm in the States. And I spoke my parents in English. So speaking Creole is secondary to me and also just really not part of my everyday experience speaking Creole. But what has happened more and more and more with each journey that I've been on with psychedelics is the increasing percentage of time I'm speaking in Creole in my journeys instead of English. And there's a way that in each of these, ancestrally, I'm constantly being reminded that this is not my home. America, the states are not my home. And even though I'm here, if I try to leave out my ancestry, this could never work. I need it. It needs to come with me in a way that I never really thought of. Like when I'm not on psychedelics, I am not thinking about how to include Haitian ancestry into my everyday life. So I would say that first, it's not a choice. Me bringing in my Haitian ancestry, my lineage, the magic is not a choice. I sometimes sit in front of my guide. I'm like, you must think I am like losing it because I'm just purely in this very old, Haitian way of being that can be very reserved, very regal, very specific and precise in a way that only Haitians can be. It's like a specific type of precision that we can have um, that comes to me when I'm in doing psychedelics. And so then I'm constantly reminded that this is my, this is my route. And then, so now when I'm doing other times when I'm about to prepare to do psychedelics, I sit at my altar and I sit and I ask my ancestors, how do I move today? What do you, what do I need to be preparing for today? Will you be with me? I I need you present because I'm understanding that the medicine and me are not what makes magic. What's making magic is Not my lineage, but the lineage of the person in front of me, the lineage of the culture that we're in and how they're present in the room. And if no one's presenting them, if no one's bringing them into the room, that's how I think we can have plenty of people who are doing all this work about their own childhood and things like that and leaving their ancestral work untouched and oppression untouched and racism untouched. Someone does need to bring it into the room. And what I do is I sit with my ancestors and say, how do I bring it into the room today? How do I make sure that we're not just healing with one generation of work? How are we healing multiple generations of work? And I felt their presence at different times, that precision comes up in the middle of a conversation, a therapy session, and I'm just all of a sudden very clear. And I can feel that that's not my clarity. It's a clarity that comes before me. So I wouldn't say I'm doing any specific Haitian rituals like by name and like there's a dance or song or something that I do. But I sit there and I ask for the characteristics of Haitian magic, which is the precision, which is the the knowing, this very clear way of looking at things. Haitians have this way of that's almost offensive because they just speak with very little fluff. So it's just like this very clear and precise way of speaking that can be offensive. But that's what I need. I need the precision. I need that like directness. I need to not get lost in the content and the fluff and all the other things that can come up that's actually blurring what's right in front of my face so i wouldn't say there's a specific thing but i definitely think the the nature of being haitian i need to to collect so that i could be with somebody um so that i could be the most specific and precise with somebody more importantly
0: Flori, I had no idea that you had this incredible, regal, precise Haitian background to you before doing this interview. And I just gotta say, I'm really, I'm really enjoying listening to you and kind of imagining this magic moving through you and you taking this moment at your altar and, and inviting, like, please be with me. And then and then you say, you know, it's not just my lineage, it's who's sitting with me and what that what that alchemy is. I'm really, I'm really appreciating it. And you know. We also talk about being ourselves a good ancestor, you know, Mm -hmm. like how can I live my life in such a way that I am a good ancestor? And so I'm curious in as you look at the future, as you look at your future as a healer, as you look at the future of psychedelic medicine, what can you do? What can we do? What can the listener do? How can we be good ancestors with the way that these medicines are moving more and more into mainstream society? How should we be thinking about ourselves so that we can be good ancestors?
1: I would say, even before bringing the medicines into the equation, I would start thinking about what are the ways that I've learned my life is only my life. I think so much of oppression is about that this life that you have here is it. And do everything you can to reach whatever measures mean that you've done it with this life that you've had, this limited life that you've had on the planet. And I think what I would start to question is, how are all the ways that shows up in my life? How does that show up in what I choose to do for a living? How does that show up in how I choose a partner? How does I show up with how I engage with other people? The idea that this life is just mine alone and it actually doesn't impact anybody else or anything else. It's just mine. And like I could just do whatever I want with it. And then hopefully at one point in my life, I get to a point where I could start helping people because I've done my life so right. I would say without medicine meditate on that and spend time with that because I think we'll start to be surprised how much is actually ingrained in us that we aren't ancestors I think it's part of our culture to not really see ourselves as ancestors and to see ourselves as just living this one life and that when it's over hopefully we've done something good but no pressure just get through this one so I would say start there the second thing is I think to think about What do I wish never happened to me? What oppressions do I wish I never accepted? I wish younger me did not accept that she was too powerful that she would hurt other people. How do I not then quiet someone else's power? How do I see what they're doing as powerful? Maybe it isn't powerful to me personally. That's not something I would call powerful. But how do I begin to see what you're doing is powerful? What you're doing is impactful. And I want you to strengthen it rather than reducing it down to a quieter, more acceptable version of it. I think psychedelics can do that, but without someone who has the I and and the curiosity, but also the humility of being wrong. Maybe that isn't the power. Maybe that isn't it. Maybe there's something else that I'm I don't know about your life, about your experience that I don't have. And I'm open to learning about it so that I can correct it or be different. I think those are the ways that we learn to be with each other and teach other people how to be, other people how to be with each other. So I think when I think about being a good ancestor, I think don't think that far, all the way that far. Think about like in this moment here and now how am I still replicating the harms that have been done to me? And by, in cultural stance, I'm not saying like in your personal life, I'm saying culturally, um, structurally, how am I still engaged and benefiting from those harms? And this goes for anybody. And then how am I still pushing that agenda forward? I don't think I want to think about, am my grandchildren going to be proud of me? I want to think about like, are my neighbors going to feel like I allowed them to be free? Do my neighbors feel like when they're with me, they feel free? That to me means that at some point, I hope that makes me a good ancestor.
0: I like that mentality about it. You spoke about the lessons you learned in the cross-cohort environment of that MAPS training. And to kind of expand that to the broader field of psychedelic medicine generally, what are some communities or organizations or leaders in the field of psychedelic medicine right now that you really look to as, as teachers, as people who you're like learning from skills from, or maybe like organizations where you're like, I love what they're doing. Who are you looking at for that, for that kind of wisdom?
1: You know, I'm going to be honest. I've felt so isolated in this for most of the time. I think most of my career, I felt very isolated from most people and I didn't know that it existed elsewhere. And I really truly felt like I was fighting upstream, swimming upstream, is that the, yeah. Um, So yeah, so I think now I'm starting to learn organizations that I, I can't say I know much about, but NYC Psychedelic, Group, I think that's their name, the Sabrina Project. Sabrina Project. I think those are the two that I've started following on social media. I know somebody who's who's one of the organizers. I'm starting to chakuna some of the great works that are coming out of Thergo webinars. Um, so, and I think right now, a lot of places are trying to seem more available to black and brown folks. And so what I'm recognizing is that they're calling in black and brown folks to do different things. And what I end up doing is just not following the organization, but following the panelists like that panelist, I think was amazing and I think has something to teach me or I'll ask if I can meet with them one-on-one, which is what I've been doing. Just meeting regular panelists who are on some organization's webinar and I'm just like, oh, I think that you have something to teach me. Can I have a call with you? Can can we follow up in a month? So that's kind of been my way of doing it. It's really been super individual because I, I inherently distrust organizations, <laughs> So yeah, so I, I don't know if that would work for everybody and if everybody has that kind of commitment, but I welcome that approach.
0: <laughs> We're getting towards the end of our time together. And a question that I always ask every guest every episode is I would like, if you would if you wouldn't mind, if you could please speak directly to the psychedelic practitioners, the therapists, the healers who may be listening to this show and wanting to make their own practice deeper and richer—you've already offered so much in terms of. I, I just so love the way that you're connecting with your ancestry and bringing that in the room. In this moment, I would just like to give you the floor here to speak directly to the listener who is who is like you, passionate about psychedelic healing, and what what, what kind of what would you share? What sort of what sort of tips or advice or or just ideas would you want to share with the psychedelic healers listening?
1: Yeah, I think I, I think I could be more specific about something I kind of touched on earlier, which is I think that the way to... I truly believe that the way that we're going to change and support and heal the communities that we're engaged in is by looking at how we have benefited from their oppression, all of us. There are ways that, and also in the ways that what we call oppressing someone else has actually oppressed us as well. I don't think we can go forward without thinking about that it's not a black and brown problem that there's racism. There is something that is taken from all of us when we no longer see one human as human there's something about us that's no longer human too. So I think we, I only have that offering that before we think about how do we get black and brown people into the room? How do we think about getting all the, um, start treating black and brown people? I think all of us need to just start thinking, well, how might I miss oppression in the room because I am invested in that oppression? That that oppression specifically, I haven't learned to see that as harmful because it's been beneficial to me, or I just never experienced it as a control. I say slow everything down. All the good intentions aren't enough. I think it requires a real reflection and awareness of how do I benefit from oppression? And that doesn't mean to turn around and berate yourself and feel horrible about it and be guilty and numb and hopeless, but to start to Unveil the ways that you're actually not allowing people to be free because your freedom is actually still tied up. So, how do we start to play around with that, be curious about it, and not have it become a sentence of some sort, an ending of some sort, but let it be the beginning of something? If I'm starting to recognize how I've invested in oppression, then at least I know that I have the ability to help someone else see their investment in oppression. And maybe it's not how they've oppressed, but how they've been oppressed. I really do think that our first step is to just sit with ourselves and let our good intentions go as best as we can and just sit with the scary parts that tell us, oh, wow, I've caused harm and that harm has benefited me. And let it just be there. Let it be present. And then when we can manage that, then we can go out and say, I've caused harm. I know how that harm has benefited me, so I will recognize it when it's between us. I will see it when it's between us. It is in my awareness now. So I will not again cause harm to you. I am more available to you being free by my not trying to protect that part of me. So that's my always, always, always my invitation. If, like I said earlier, if you haven't done it to yourself, do not do it to other people. If you haven't embodied that freedom, please don't force it onto somebody else because what you're forcing is probably not that.
0: You touched on some really great stuff in what you just said and um, two pieces that tie together beautifully. And um, this idea that the binary of oppressor and oppressed that somehow the oppressed person is unfree and the oppressor is free and kind of lampooning that and say no that's not, the oppressor is equally unfree okay. i first learned that in the work of Amé Césaire. i don't know if you're familiar with um it's from martinique and wrote an incredible book called discourse on colonialism <laughs> and i read it in i read it in college and and just this idea that these systems of oppression make everyone unfree
1: mm-hmm. and
0: and you started with that point and then you beautifully brought it to this point of like If we can sit with this knowledge, then it changes our reactivity. And the reactivity is part of being unfree. So if I, as a white dude, am not able to see that I've benefited from oppression, when it's pointed out to me, I will immediately react to it in a way that is completely unfree. I'll be totally hijacked by that and be like, well, no, I'm different and I'm my parents were this way and I came from here or whatever it is. But that reactivity, as you pointed out, and then what happens when you're reactive because you feel like the victim, you end up causing harm to someone else. So someone points out to me like, actually, you know what you what you said Affects me in this way, and you know, there's some cultural baggage around that. Like, and I'm like, oh no, no, I'm not that. Like reactivity, right? Um, And and so these two points that you've made really tie into each other, which is that systems of oppression make everyone unfree. We are, Mm -hmm. we're all, we're all stuck in them. And you, and you pointed out that the antidote here is to sit with it and feel it and let it be true and real, and then move to action and move to to change. And then we'll bring it all the way back to the whole dang conversation. Psychedelics, I think, psychedelic medicine and healing allows us to rapidly transform our brains, allows our brains to be neuropl- more neuroplastic. And so therefore, when we're approaching these oppressive structures that exist in our, in our own psyche, what better tool than psychedelics? But it's only going to work, it's only going to work if it's held in the right way, if it's, if it's held by everybody, right? It's not going to work. As you said, if it's just black and brown bodies in the seats, but nothing's changed, Mm -hmm. then nothing changes. Right. So, so I, I just, I I really love what the way you've laid that out. And it's a, it's real call to action too, for the psychedelic community. It isn't just about diversity and inclusion as like a check Mark to say, okay, I'm not a bad person. I'm, you know, look, look at, look, at, you know, my roster or whatever it is. Yeah. If we want psychedelics to actually be transformative of the world, mm-hmm. then we have to kind of change the whole way we're looking at it.
1: Absolutely. And thank you for pulling that all together. I guess that's what you're here
0: for. Um, <laughs> no, that,
1: but... <laughs> that is, that is
0: literally what I'm here for. <laughs> I you give the goods that. and I pull it together.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that because it, it, it is exactly that. It is exactly that. It is that. If I'm not aware of how I respond when I recognize how I've harmed, then I just don't see it when I'm doing it. And I think all of that ties in beautifully, but that is the call to action. The call to action is if you're not allowing people to tell you how they've harmed you, if you're not allowing yourself to be uncomfortable and angry about having been a harmer or someone who's harmed others, harmer's not a word, but someone who's um, harmed others, then you won't feel the discomfort when it's happening, when someone can't articulate it to you, when someone can't tell you you're harming me right now. Mm. You won't feel that because you have no other experience of that feeling. So it is a call to action, it's an invitation to be uncomfortable, to be terribly disappointed in yourself, to be terribly disappointed in your family and your lineage, to be terribly disappointed in your institutions and to be angry about them and to be angry that you allowed yourself to be in the situation so that when someone else is coming to you with their most vulnerable parts, before they have to muster the courage to tell you you've harmed them, you can recognize oh, this is what it's like when I harmed before. You don't have to tell me. I recognize this in myself. And now I can approach it in a way that doesn't allow you the extra burden of healing yourself and trying to help me heal you too.
0: Well, and that's like the opposite of spiritual bypassing. It's like spiritual bypassing is like, we're all one, so I don't have to do anything. The Mm -hmm. opposite is like, we're all one, so I can see myself as this person. And I can Mm -hmm. see that this sucks for them. And I and I'm gonna I'm gonna not do that now. <laughs> like, like we, I can see myself as them, and I, you know, and I think that that with the work that you're doing with with supporting in in psychedelic medicine, it's it's bringing, and it's just I love what you said in the beginning about like no, it's not about feeling like everything's great when it's not it's about accessing the truth of your own righteous indignation that it's not fucking okay yeah. and i just we need that in this field and we need that in this medicine and we need that awareness and so i'm i'm so happy that we had you on the show today to share that and i think a lot of folks are going to be kind of like some some people listening with some gears turning like oh you know i can actually see that i can see that i i can see that in myself you know which is
1: I hope so. <laughs> that would be i would love that so that'd be great i hope that wherever i am people are being a little challenged so that sounds good to me
0: <laughs> well Flori, this has been a really lovely conversation i could go deeper but you know we get, we have an hour today for the show i i i'm aware that you're stepping into more of a, of a leadership role in this in this field you're stepping into more of your voice and more sharing your perspective here and so with that in mind how can the listeners support you follow your work what kind of opportunities are you looking for in this field as you're stepping more and more into leadership how how can we be following you and being aware of of the work you're doing
1: yeah, I think it's it's funny cuz I was I knew that this question would come at some point and <laughs> and everyone's like you need to build the website, you need to have a something and I was just like, honestly, I don't want any of that. I just want people to feel challenged. And if mm. that's it, if that's all I can offer in the many different little workshop spaces I go to and the many little engagements that I do, that's kind of all I need. What I do love getting are emails of people telling me how they feel challenged. Love that. I won't respond to all of them. It's something I like to tell people, like, I don't owe you anything, but I do love to hear it. And I think that's part of me learning that to protect my own boundaries and to respect my desire of not being too available. Um, yeah, so I don't have any place for people to find me, but like, if you find my email address, it's will totally email me.
0: Well, I, I was I was going to ask, with the knowledge that it might not be returned, would you like to make your email available in the show notes of the podcast so that people can contact you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm totally down with people sending me emails. As long as everyone knows that I probably won't respond, but I will read it.
0: <sighs> well, Flori, it has been such a pleasure to get to know you today. And I think it's hilarious that you described yourself as a serious person. <laughs> Um, or as a limitingly serious person in the beginning of the conversation, like I'm very serious. I was like, you've laughed more <laughs> and bigger than any previous guest I've had on the show. And <laughs> and there and you've made me laugh because and so like the vibe has been high here. So Yeah
1: I, It's funny because more and more like I'm getting that that I feel so serious. People are like, but you're not. And I'm like, I don't understand where this disconnect is. So yeah, it showed up here too. It shows up everywhere, I think. It's something yes. I think from its journey I'll be uh, going into, <laughs> maybe.
0: I see, I see liberation in your laugh. You know, it's we're 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 talking about your story and and needing to feel small and needing to be controlled and being afraid of hurting and and being sort of serious. there's a confinement that that you seem to be just breaking out of as you grow. And I think that you're a, just a, a beautiful example of that. And I imagine that with the people that you work with, they're catching that vibe too. They're yeah. like, oh, I want. I want some of this freedom. I want some of this. I want some of this regal energy that, mm-hmm. that I'm seeing here, and I think that that's a huge part of healing too. Is like I'm going to show up as a healer and show you the work that I've done and show you mm-hmm. it's possible.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I just keep coming back to I'm doing nothing to you that I haven't done to myself first, and and I can only hope and pray that your version of what I am right now is just something I get to witness and be along for the ride for.
0: I love that. And that's a great place to end our our little chat today. Thanks for being on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It's been a pleasure.
1: This is great. It's so exciting. Thank you. You're very
0: welcome. It's my pleasure. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.